thing. Well, if you'd like to reach in front of you and pull out the good black book, it's, um, we're turning to 2 Samuel again to continue the reading, and we're reading all of chapter 7 this morning. So pull it out because it's much easier to comprehend it if you're reading along, I find. Mm. All right, page 306. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt this day to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed." Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom." He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. 
And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Hi everyone, Uh, my name's Scott, I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, Thanks to Ella and Gareth, I'm going to pray, and if uh, while I'm doing that, it's going to be a very short prayer, you can keep your Bibles open to page 306, that'd be great. Heavenly Father, please be with us as we consider your great words to us now, in Jesus' name, Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know this man? Uh, His name is Kevin McLeod, he hosts the prolific British documentary series called Grand Designs. I want you to listen to how... This series is described. Kevin McLeod shares the emotional highs and lows of those willing to put everything on the line to create homes they hope will transform their lives forever. Homes forever. Now, it's a uh, pretty highbrow show, and uh, Kevin uses pretty highbrow words like highbrow, for example and uh, symbiotic and sonorous and words that you really need a dictionary to understand. It's like uh, part renovation show and part English class rolled into one. (laughs) Grand designs. Now, do you know who these people are? And it's not Meghan Markle, okay? (laughs) Amazing as she is. They're called Chip and Joanna Gaines, and they're apparently Texas' most famous couple, which is saying something because George Bush comes from Texas... They're based out of um, Waco, and in their hit TV show called Fixer Upper, they take the worst house in the best street and turn it into their client's forever home. Joanna looks like kind of sophisticated Korean-American, but when you watch the show, she's this really kind of likeable, earthy, almost a a cowgirl living the American dream with a super keen eye for design and a very savvy mind for business. And she loves her kids and cupcakes and Texas. And she's really not highbrow at all. After all, she's married to a dude called Chip. (laughs) Much more my kind of people. Now, if you think about it, right, Grand Designs, up here, lofty, and Fixer Upper sound kind of opposite to each other. But what they have in common is they oversee amazing building and design work. And it's very common. I mean, almost every episode to hear their clients talk about their new houses as forever homes. I wonder if you've heard that expression, a forever home or a forever house. I just think it's weird because nothing you own is forever, is it? You just get the use of it for a few years, maybe a few decades at most, before you depart this earth, leaving your forever home, well, forever Now, what we see um, today in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is King David's desire to build for God a home, a permanent house for the Ark of the Covenant at least. And what we hear God say in reply is a no. That's a big no from me. No, David, you won't build a house for me. I will build a house for you and it will truly be a forever house. 
the likes of which has not and will not be repeated ever. And friends, you and I can be a part of it. So it's really worth listening in. We are, uh, of course, by this stage, a few weeks into our series in 2 Samuel, which charts the, the rise and the fall of the Old Testament's greatest king, King David, which prepares us for the arrival of God's greatest king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so far we've seen David arise to rule over all Israel. Last week, we witnessed his mixed attempts at bringing the Ark of the Covenant, that's the tangible, visible, dangerous representation of God's presence and rule into the very middle of Jerusalem. And we saw him eventually succeed in bringing it into the city with great rejoicing and much celebration. And our story today really follows on thematically from that event last week. Although chronologically, uh, David's many victories that are described in the next chapter, chapter 8, may have happened already. So have a look with me. Chapter 7, verse 1, you see that David tells us he was settled in his palace. He had defeated his surrounding enemies. He looked over at the Ark of the Covenant and he wondered aloud to himself, verse 2, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the Ark remains in a tent. And to be honest with you, it is somewhat surprising that David lived in an opulent palace and the Ark was sheltered in a tent especially if the presence of the ark was supposed to signify that David only reigned underneath God's rule. So perhaps David was a little sheepish about that imbalance. Uh, Perhaps he thought that if he secured the ark more permanently in Jerusalem, that might eliminate any tricksters or rivals who might try to relocate the kingdom and thereby replace the king by moving the ark somewhere else. Who knows, there may well be some of that self-interest at play. I think he basically thinks he's made it. I'm in the city, I'm settled in the palace, I'm delivered from my enemies, I've arrived. And now I've arrived, I reckon God ought to stay. Seeing as I've arrived, God no longer needs to move around, I should build his ark a house. Actually, at this point, you you might have noticed he doesn't articulate a plan to Nathan the prophet, but from the following discussion, it's clear he intends to build a better, more permanent kind of housing for the ark. But by the end of verse 3, he's just got a good intention. Uh, So does Nathan. Uh, Whatever you've got in mind, Captain, you go for it, says Nathan. But neither have the word of the Lord on the matter. And so again, just like last week, they're just armed only with good intentions. Again... Like last week, those will be shown to be insufficient, although at least this time without disaster. Because when God does bring his word through the prophet Nathan from verse 4 onwards, he says to David, that's a no from me. And for the rest of today, we're going to work out why God says no to what seems like an entirely fitting and appropriate idea from David. And there's basically three reasons that are spelt out for us in verses 4 to 16. The first reason is detailed there in verses 5 to 7. God has never needed a house, and he's never asked for one. He don't need one, he ain't asked for one. And I I think in our minds, this is kind of obvious, isn't it? It's more obvious to us than perhaps to them. Why would God, who made heaven and earth, ever need a house? And surely if he needed one, he could build one for himself. And moreover, how could God ever be kind of contained in a building. 
Well, that's effectively what King Solomon, David's son, who eventually constructed the temple in Jerusalem, admits when he had finished its construction. Further along in our Bibles in 1 Kings, he says this, The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I've built. That's pretty much what the Apostle Paul says as he argues with the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's God. He doesn't need a shelter. He doesn't need a temple. And in fact, you might have noticed that neither God nor David nor the Nathan nor the narrator even used the word temple here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In fact, the, the word is used only once in the whole book. You can see the word house, you can see the word dwelling, you can see the word tent, you can see the word place, but not temple, as if to make the point that this God is unlike any of the gods of the day. He can't be domesticated, he can't be contained, he can't be restrained, he cannot be put under the control of any king. It is, of course, the other way around. God doesn't need a house as a matter of principle. But actually, he's never requested a house as a matter of practice either. Because have a look, verse 6 and 7, he's been on the move with his people. As they travelled out of slavery in Egypt to the present moment, he travelled with them. Though heaven and earth cannot contain his almighty being, his presence dwelt among them in a special way via this Ark of the Covenant, this gold-plated wooden box, as they moved about. So he doesn't need a house as a matter of principle, nor as a matter of practice, which is what he says in verse 7. Read along with me. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? He's never done it. He's never needed to. So that's the first reason. The, uh, the second reason why God says no to David's well-intentioned desire to construct housing for the Ark of the Covenant is, to use technical language, because David is not the dude. Highly theological significant term, dude. Now his son Solomon might be the dude, David's not the dude. And uh, you can see that in verse 5. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? <laughs> Not you, is what he's saying. And, and if we were to go to 1 Chronicles, uh, which is a, a more kind of idealised version of the story, this is what it says. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, but this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. His name will be Solomon. He is the one who will build a house for my name. So David is the dude in the sense of being a warrior king, but not the dude to build the house for the ark because he's fought too many wars. His son Solomon, a prince of peace who foreshadows the Lord Jesus, the great prince of peace, is the one who will do the building. So that's the second reason. But the third and most important reason why God says no to David is because it's actually the other way around. God will build a house for David. David wants to build a literal house for God. God wants to build a royal house, an everlasting dynasty for David. He's just got much bigger plans. 
much bigger building plans for David. And it got me thinking about those kind of outlandish building plans. You know, the, the ones that you'd be familiar with on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, the kind of houses that gangster rappers kind of like to build for themselves, like his uh, Kanye's. Uh, that belongs to Drake. Uh, that's Jay-Z's palace, and uh, original and the best, Dr. Dre lives there. Now, if you don't know any of the people I've just mentioned, just drop it in conversation amongst teenagers you know, and you will totally light it up. Over the top. But actually, when it comes to over-the-top building plans, it's very hard to go past John Travolta's house. The sharp ones among you will have detected that not only does he have space for cars, but also aeroplanes, including a Boeing 707 in retro Qantas colours. And uh, when you think about it, who doesn't need a lounge room with views over their private executive jet? We all need that. And then I got to thinking, John, it's a bit silly, isn't it, to have parking for all those planes if you can't get them in or out of your place? But you see, John, he's smart. And he's thought of this because his place actually has a 2K runway attached to it. (laughs) Speaking of the architecture, Travolta says, I I can't really call it modern style. It's it's really a mid-century style home. No, John, it's really an airport. (laughs) And it's really ridiculous. Completely over the top, isn't it? but are nowhere near as over the top as God's plans for David. In fact, these plans in this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, are really amongst the, the high point of the Old Testament. David wants to build a house for God. God promises to build David an everlasting kingdom, a royal dynasty that will last eternally, that even you and I can be caught up in. It, it's called the Davidic covenant in some places. Well, let's have a look at some of the details. First details are actually fulfilled in David's lifetime. Okay, let's very quickly go through it. Verse 9, I'm going to make your name great, David. Verse 10, my people Israel will have a place for themselves in the land of Israel and they will have peace. Verse 11, even you, David, will have rest from your enemies. All of these happen in David's lifetime. All of which kind of repeat the promises made to Abraham as far back as Genesis 12, in which Abraham would be uh, given a great name he would become a great nation and his people would have a place of their very own, the so-called promised land. But all this happens in David's lifetime. And so the real guts of this promise, of this covenant, uh, really comes from the second half of verse 11 onwards. It's this part of the covenant that's God's binding promise that introduces the idea that God's great plan to restore all things and bring people back into saving relationship with himself is going to involve a king and it's going to involve a kingdom. Okay, very important verses. Let's read them out in full. Second half of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, And I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. 
but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You get what God is saying, right? You want to build a house for me, David. Let me tell you about the house I'm going to build for you. Verse 12, look at it. When you die, your son will succeed you, and I'm guaranteeing his kingdom. In fact, verse 13, as we've already seen, he's the dude who's going to build the temple, but God effectively says, I don't care so much about that. I'm not even going to use the word for the rest of the book. Because verse 13b, and way more importantly, I'm going to establish his throne forever. And this is what it means. Verse 14, I will be his father, he will be my son. And so this covenant, this binding promise between God and David will not only involve a king and a kingdom, but the idea that each Davidic king is called a son of God. That is the title given to each of the kings of Israel from David's line. Which means when you see Jesus presented as the Son of God in the New Testament with that specific title, it's not referring to him as the second member of the Trinity. It's referring to him as the fulfillment of this promise of God to David. Each king in that line is a son of God, which means he will be treated by God as you would expect a good father to treat his son. Now that's to say, verse 14, when he does wrong, he's going to be disciplined, usually by human agents, with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. And if you keep reading through 2 Samuel and into 1 and 2 Kings, you will discover that many of the sons of God do wrong. But it's also to say that God will never take his love away from the king, as he did with King Saul. God is binding himself to his kings, to his sons, to the offspring of King David eternally. And he summarizes his commitment there in verse 16. Have a look. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You think you want to build a house for me, David. You think you've arrived. Let me tell you about my building plans for you, says God. And I'm only just getting started with you. God promises to build him a royal dynasty. It's a forever house. Death can't annul it. Sin can't destroy it. And time won't exhaust it. It's a forever house, solid as rock. Now, you might be saying to yourself there, well, that's all very interesting, especially um, the bit about John Travolta. What's it got to do with me? Let me put that another way. If the promises to David focus on a forever house, a forever kingdom, forever's got to include now, surely. So how does that work? Well, it works in the first instance because these promises are fulfilled in our forever king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is great David's greatest son. He is the fulfillment of God's first great promise to Abraham to bring forth blessing to the whole world through one of Abraham's descendants. That's Genesis 12. And he is the fulfillment of God's great promise here, 2 Samuel chapter 7, to establish an everlasting kingdom ruled by the sons of God. How do we know, though, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises? Well, you just open up your New Testament on page 1. The very first verse of our New Testament says this. This is the account of Jesus, 
the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What about when Jesus commences his public ministry just a few chapters later in Matthew? A voice at Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. God never said that about any of the other Davidic kings. With him I'm well pleased. Or uh, consider one of those pivotal turning points within the Gospels. You remember when people are trying to work out who Jesus is and Peter nails it. You remember that? Matthew chapter 16. What about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say, say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, friends, that is a stunning passage because it reveals Jesus as the Messiah, which means God's appointed and anointed king. And it reveals him as the Son of God. That is the title which depicts Jesus as David's successor and the president over his everlasting kingdom. God promised a forever house, an everlasting kingdom, and now it's presided over by a resurrected king, which means he will rule that kingdom forevermore. Stunning. But there's, a, there's an additional stunning element to an already stunning passage because you see here that Jesus has taken over the building work. Did you notice that? As he presides over a kingdom that will endure forever, he's not going to build a temple or a palace. He's going to build a church. But he do not mean a building. He means a growing, though inglorious collection of people who in the working of the Holy Spirit are slowly resembling their king. God promised David a forever house, meaning an everlasting kingdom. Jesus fulfills that promise by being a resurrected, everlasting king who has taken over the building work by building us, a collection of people, his subjects and servants who have put our faith in him. And so, friends, to finish, I'd like to finish with one way that we as his subjects and servants ought to apply to Samuel chapter 7. I reckon a bunch of you watched that wedding last night, eh? good wasn't it beyond uh, all the intrigue about who would walk Megan down the aisle and uh, what she would be wearing and the animated sermon by that preacher hey that had the royals nervous didn't it and he almost got there you know he almost got to talking about Jesus death for us and then he started talking about fire it's a shame but good job beyond all that there was a promise made very center of the service, right? A promise made um, from Harry to Meghan, uh, a promise made from Meghan to Harry. And the coming years will reveal how well they go at keeping those promises. You know, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and in, in its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, I need us all to understand that God keeps his promises. And unlike the wedding vows, God's promises are almost one-sided, aren't they? I mean, he makes these grand promises and all he asks is that we trust and believe in them i mean it's almost one-sided isn't it i was thinking this week uh, that so many and perhaps most of our silly painful 
even sinful decisions uh, and choices in life come because we don't trust God's promise, when we've got good reason to trust God's promise. I have forgiven you, says God. I've forgiven you. Why is it that so often we still feel unworthy so much that we, we don't even pray? We feel we can't. God promises you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. Then why do I give into sin so quickly as though I have no choice but to acquiesce? Why is that? Jesus promises, I will take you to be with me and where I am is perfect. Then why do I spend so much of my life trying to experience or recreate heaven on earth? Why do I do that? Jesus promises, you will inherit the universe along with me. Why do I struggle to be generous then? God says, I think on every page, I love you. I love you. Then why do we look to other people, often inappropriate people, for the support and validation that can only be given by God? the one in whom there is infinite love. Why do we do that? Why do we restlessly search for wonder and life from experiences and possessions and even relationships, all good things, when the eternal life seeks relationship with me? Why, oh, why? God is a God of promises. Friends, he makes them and he keeps them. I have forgiven you, I am with you, I will take you to be with me forever, and I love you. You trace the sinful, painful, and, uh, and just silly choices you've made in your life, and I've got a suspicion that you made them because you didn't trust the word of God. That's true for me. I'm guessing it might also be true for you. Friends, we can trust him, and we can trust his promises. David wanted to build a house for God, God promised to build a forever house for David. It's now presided over by a forever king called Jesus. And as his subjects and servants, he bids us to place our trust in him. Amen and amen. We're going to finish uh, with a song. Uh, it's going to be our collection song. Uh, as the band comes